0: Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by Mike Schleibach, the guitarist of Darkest Hour and Be Well. For the last 25 years, Darkest Hour have played a high-energy mix of hardcore punk and heavy metal, After releasing nine studio albums through labels like Victory, E1, Sumerian, and Southern Lord, the band have decided to go independent for album number 10. While working on that record, the band have also launched a Patreon page, where they recently debuted Live in Lockdown, a recording of a livestream concert that they used to raise money for the legendary DC venue The Black Cat. I was psyched to have Schleybaum on the show to talk about Live and Lockdown, the move to Patreon, and his thoughts on Darkest Hours' impressive catalog. Thank you for listening. Are you still living like in D.C. proper these days?
1: Yes, sir. I'm right outside. I'm actually currently a Maryland resident, uh, Maryland represent, but um, Washington, D.C., is an awesome city. I lived there for you know two decades and then before that uh, in Virginia. So the DMV area is home, mm-hmm. but I'm on the Maryland side of DC. I think about 6 miles from the capital.
0: So Joe, did, y- did y'all get hit with the crazy storm over the last few days too?
1: We did. It's snowing, but I'll tell you we all love it here. Well, my wife and my kid live coexist with me in the house. Luckily, I made the move to renovate the basement into my private dojo, awesome studio space. And now that COVID set in, uh, you know, they're upstairs, I'm downstairs. So at least the snow made us go outside. I hate snow when I'm on tour, but I was thankful now.
0: Yeah, I've been wondering, you know, it must, i have like, I'm up here in Brooklyn and I feel like everything outside of like a five block radius feels like worlds away to me these days. <laughs> so oh, like, man,
1: you're in New York. Well, I feel yeah. for you, dude. And are you in an apartment? I am. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you're hanging in there. You got a lot less room than me. I'm, I'm very grateful for how much space I have. I really, I, I you won't hear any complaining. <laughs> But it's good to keep it simple, dude. You're going to come out of the stronger.
0: Okay. I I would certainly hope so.
1: (laughs) You're going to be a lean, mean fight machine when this thing's over, ready to travel the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just keep thinking like, this must've been such a wild month and a half to have lived down on your neck of the woods. What's it been like in the Maryland, DC DMV area lately?
1: Uh, Well, you know, you can't say it's normal because, you know, nothing's been normal that's happened in Washington, D.C. the past month here Mm -hmm. or two months or four years or whatever. But, uh, you know, we're used to shit getting wild and uh, we're appreciative that whatever went down, it's rare, I think, for me to, what is the word, congratulate the the police forces of anywhere, especially like Washington, D.C. But I... I've often said that I I do feel safer in DC when I interact with police officers than in other places because I as a growing up being a bike messenger while I was starting the band out I had multiple interactions with DC cops, Capitol Hill police. I mean, Capitol Hill police and me go way back, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh I I'm not saying I don't have any love, but I've had I have my fair share of stories where I felt wronged and I still like really felt for everybody who was, you know, there at the insurrection day or whatever the hell you want to call it and whatever's happened and the entire reaction that everybody's had to like kind of watch on their screens because we're all trapped in our, in our apartments. You know, I think the whole, it's just all been kind of wild. And as a dad and a husband and an artist, I've tried to balance it all and uh, where I'm at right now is I'm trying to listen from a lot of different places you know different news sources and different types of media not just on the internet and then I'm also trying to you know on the personal side create art and music because I do think that you know especially now more than ever it's an important tool to combating like what's going on like We have a lot of fragmentation in society. We have a lot of misinformation. And one thing that's always cool about a Darkest Hour concert is that we can bring a lot of different types of people together, talk about things sometimes, let them know how we feel, let them know it's okay if they don't always feel the exact same way. But we got the guitars, so this is how we feel. It's our show, you know, type Mm -hmm. thing. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you can usually connect with, like, a lot of different people that it's hard to connect with over just straight the internet the way things are right now. So... We're hoping to, you know, see a end at some point to this crazy lockdown everybody's in so that we can go back to connecting with people. And we're trying to do our best. And I'll close here with this because we've been on a lot of fucking long tours, man. And sometimes you're on a really long tour and shit's fucked up and you do some shit and you're like, God damn it. It gets caught all over the iPhone, call over the internet. There's a story about it. And then later you're home from the tour and you're like, ah, man, act like a total idiot. That was crazy. And then you're really embarrassed. I just don't want to be that way about anything that happens during the uh, pandemic. So I'm trying to keep things level-headed, you know, (laughs) and focus on my art. And still have a purpose though, you know? It's a hard balance.
0: I I would imagine. I mean, like, you've got two very different things going on, like kind of smashed into each other. you got your art practice and you've also got your family life, you know, because those things as a touring musician, obviously you're out and about a lot more, but now that it kind of sounds like you're all a bit more on top of each other, have you found that you're able to still like be creative and carve out time for yourself to work on music? Or has that been a bit of a struggle over the last year?
1: Well, I like this question because I'm a gangster love right now. You know what I'm saying? I'm out here in the streets, like doing this band 24 hours a day. Like I'm actually in a really, Unique, comfortable position where you know I had built a home studio. Uh, during our self titled record, we had a studio in Bethesda, Maryland, where we were working at, and I had sort of had this philosophy that I was going to have a home life and I was going to do the studio thing. And Darkest Hour could use the studio that was close because we were sort of based in DC and it made sense instead of like going to some studio somewhere else. Anyway, long story short, I made the decision after that to just reinvest at the house so that I could be home and be present with the family but I'm like a workaholic like I'm gonna work 24 hours a day on art and music all the time right so this gives me the opportunity to 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 just be able to be present with my family and also continue to work and now that the pandemics hit and everything shifted like I haven't taken on producing any other bands, which is something that I do. I haven't taken on uh, composing any music for television, which was something else that I also did on top of being in Darkest Hour. But I have taken on the responsibilities of the Darkest Hour Patreon, which I've like sort of inherited because, you know, we were a touring band. We're in a lot of debt because we do a lot. We're not like, a, I don't want to diss local bands because we are a local band, but we are not a regional band. You know, we tour all over the world. That's flights, that's buses, that's hotels, that's gas. that's real, you know, people are in their over 30. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they need to make some money. So, you know, we had debt and then the pandemic hit. There was zero help from the government for the type of company that the band is. So I wasn't really able to like do anything. I mean, I'm like stuck here holding... The band's huge debt. I can't work. The band can't tour. We're canceling shows. It's like kind of all crashing in. And then I'm like, well, I had started this Patreon a while ago, which is a monthly subscription service, basically for anyone who doesn't know what it is, over a website. It just basically cuts out like Instagram and Facebook and shit, and you just get right to us, and we can give you stuff like downloads and old demos and crazy shit, and it's boom, 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 you know? And uh, I started digging into that because it was the only avenue that Darkest Hour had at this point to do anything like, you know? And so that's grown and it's been really rewarding. And at the same time, I had another band called Be Well that's on Equal Vision Records that put out an entire album. The music video released it. It's almost like it didn't happen, but it happened. We didn't get to tour, but I was involved with that on the internet, you know? And uh, it's kind of like, in a weird way, I've now been able to focus for almost a year solely on Darkest Hour, even though I thought I was doing that before. Mm-hmm. And that sort of brings me to where I'm at with the question, which is like, I have I think Darkest Hour now, one year after the pandemic, is in a better position to build on what we need to to make Album 10 matter. And I think we were working on Album 10 what, this is what we call it, which is our tenth album. A while for a while, and then this pandemic hit, and it just kind of fucking just—I don't want to say ruined, but just kind of upended everything. And now we've caught our footing, and I think I think where we're gonna end up is, you know, just like any other story of like when you face adversity, like, and you overcome it, what we're gonna achieve is something that would never have been possible without like having to survive what we've been having to do.
0: Totally. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the Patreon because I wanted to ask about your relationship with crowdfunding because this isn't your first time at that particular rodeo, you know, like the last yeah. record was crowdfunded to a, a pretty large degree. So how is your relationship to like that part of the the industry changed from that record to this new Patreon project that you've got going?
1: Well, all right, let's clear the air. You know, Patreon is a completely different process than uh, than uh, Indiegogo, mm-hmm. which is what we did our crowdfund of Godless Prophets on. But there was a lot of things that we learned in the process. Um, Godless Prophets and the Migrant Flora was actually uh, uh, released on Southern Lord Records worldwide. It's available right now on limited purple vinyl on their web store. It's the only place you can get it. And people, you got to go get the Southern Lord shit if you want it because it's gone soon like you know like we were lucky that they licensed it but you never know what's going to get repressed and how because darkest hour stuff like just like deliver us on doing ruin it's like we, we don't keep it in press forever so i encourage people to go check out like the southern lord release of it because yes we crowdfunded the making of the record but the crowdfunding process was so hard the idea of getting all that money and then funding the effort along the way, it, it was impossible for us to not only fund, but then also promote what we had made. Mm. So I think we needed a partner who could help promote it, distribute it so that we could have oxygen to go continue to be abandoned. So we had to uh, partner with Southern Lord, which was really helpful. We're really thankful for them for doing that. Greg, the owner of the, label has been super supportive of the band forever and the patreon is no diss on uh record labels or even our agreement with southern lord i mean we're just stuck over here because we had to almost invent a new way to monetize being in a band you Mm -hmm. know and and we didn't because patreon existed but we had to decide like this is the only place we can exist and i think what's cool is some some of our fans have figured it out some of them have come along the way i totally don't fault anyone. Who doesn't have time for this shit? Who doesn't have money for a monthly subscription? I get it. I mean, all the stuff we're doing, you can't control with Darkest Hour. We're making so much of this stuff. I mean, eventually it's floating out to the general public. Sometimes we sell some of it on our, our big cartel store. You know, if you can't afford a monthly subscription, maybe you can find some of this limited stuff. But without these Patreons, we wouldn't be able to continue making all the fun stuff we're doing and growing you know, and I think a lot of what's happened is that we as a band have totally taken over control of what we do. Like we're a hundred percent DIY from Washington, DC punk rock, heavy metal band. We do, we do. We don't have a manager. We have, yes, we have publicists. We have booking agents. We have a tech guy. We have everything that um, people at record labels have or had when they knew what they were doing, but we, we have a team and we just, uh, we're, we're stoked that we can control what we want to do. So. You know, that's kind of the ultimate goal of any artist, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, is there, are there any lessons that you learned from the more, what sounds like a much more stressful?
1: Uh, oh, the session? lessons. Oh yeah. yeah, I guess I didn't go to, well, the lessons are, uh, it's really, I mean, it's really the chicken before the egg because, you know, if I was going to crowdfund an album again, I would want to have it done before I crowdfunded it. <laughs> but that <laughs> means you're already paying for it at a time, so what does it matter? And then the other thing is that in some weird way we crowdfunded it and then it felt like it had to be not only our record but the, a record that we made with the fans because they had you know in in the way that record labels shape the sound of darkest hour albums and producers shape sound i mean if you don't believe me go check out the albums because they do the fans shaped the last one and so i think that was because of the interaction because of the funding because of how we had to keep them in touch and also uh you know another thing is i don't think you can really bridge too many of the components of like an old school like record label manager kind of infrastructure against you know crowdfund because it's just there starts to be so many people in the kitchen and there starts to be so much that you need to pay for. And in the end, it's just a little thing like, here's people's money. Here's the record. They want it. Boom. Uh, you know, making something, selling something before you have it, funding it before you make it. I mean, it's always problematic. Whereas the Patreon, what you're getting is the experience. Like, yeah, you get a bunch of shit. Like you get all crazy releases and you get, to even be involved as we ask people what they want and kind of drive the content. But at the same time, like you're also like the people that run it is us. So you're really like interacting with the dudes that are writing these music and the guys that have written this music or played the music live who've lived in the van or the hotel room or whatever. I mean, normally you are not getting our attention. Like before the Patreon, my mission was like, Oh, I'll post something. And then like, whatever people comment. Cool. I'll like some stuff, but I ain't got time. I got to go over here, but now I get the importance of the actual interaction of what's happening. So I think that's streamlined because of the monthly subscription thing versus what you've asked me about, which is the upfront crowdfund. So in conclusion, I think crowdfund is dead. I think uh monthly service fees are here because That is what every major software company is doing. That is what a lot of these like Zooms doing, for instance. It's obviously the best way to monetize and continue to develop at the same time.
0: Right. And as you're saying, you kind of have like a more intimate relationship with your audience. Like the example that you were giving before posting something and not feeling any sort of inclination to respond when people are talking on it it's totally different when like these people are essentially paying for your time on some level with the Patreon.
1: You know, I mean, that's a dirty way to look at it, but I like to think (laughs) of it as like, it's, I like to think of it. It's weeded out. Right. You know, Uh like if you, if I had a dollar for every, like, Oh, we're looking for influencers sign up now, stupid ass comment. I got to (laughs) delete or like, you know, weird ass fucking ads that show up on Facebook that I got to delete. You know, I mean, you know, uh, you know what I do now on Facebook? I gotta po- if I post something, I post a video, I post the YouTube link, I post the same shit three times because, honestly, sometimes it's the photo, sometimes it's the video, sometimes it's the link, but sometimes shit doesn't get aggregated anywhere. So I don't know. I don't like social networks, to be honest with you. I don't like what's happening, but I exist in them and I market in them, but I do like Patreon because this is simple. I'm making art with my buddies. We talk to you through this thing. And then we give you shit. And if you have a problem, you hit us up because we give a shit, man. Mm -hmm. You know? And then we go do live fucking shows and we we film. We do whatever we want because we got total access and then we give it to you. When did you
0: start brainstorming for the live and lockdown performance? Like how far along in the COVID situation did you start coming up with that idea?
1: I'm going to credit that to our current United States booking agent, Jonathan Wilson at TKO uh, Mm. entertainment or whatever the hell they call booking. I don't even know, but Jonathan is my man. And like I said, we don't have anyone in control. So it's sort of a loose anarchy over here. And he approached me like, Hey man, you know, you guys should do this live stream thing. Like you can take it for it. You can do this stuff, you know, you can put it up there and then you will do a chat while, you know, while it's, Going kind of, he walked us through the entire press process of how it could be done like how you would sell a ticket to a live stream, how you would then pre record the live stream but stream it so it's live when you're recording it but live when you're streaming it, so it's live but it's not a live stream, it's a live space stream. And then you chat with people while they're watching you live and then you go on Zoom after and you party with them. I mean, it definitely took some resist, you know, some some explaining and i'm trying to paint a picture for people i don't have a lot of time so the initial reaction was like no fucking way and then i probably hung up but he (laughs) really like bought it brought it to and then we connected with the good people at veeps.com they're awesome over there uh i think sierra is her name sienna oh i'm terrible anyway somebody everybody at veeps (laughs) this streaming site they connected with us they taught us how to do this program on how to stream it and they walked it through us so i mean i guess the the question was how long ahead did we think about that man it was it was basically from the beginning of uh when we did the stay at home fest thing with uh what was it metal Metal injection injection. yeah so we did that which is more of like filmed in your filmed in your you know personal dojo edited together type thing and it was streamed on youtube and, and i was like honestly i was like somewhere else the night it aired i don't even know and i remember john hit me up for the youtube login because again like everybody in the band's active they're constantly shifting around as darkest hour in the different you know platforms and it's no manager so he he was like hey i'm going on to watch this live on youtube and i'm like we're live on youtube he's like yeah I'm like, okay, whatever. But John went and had a lot of fun. And I was shocked. I was like, you had fun? What the fuck are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's fun. And then I went to uh, a music video premiere that was live on YouTube for my other band, Be Well, that was hosted by Equal Vision. And that was a ton of fun, like chatting during the video and hanging out with the fans. And I was like, whoa, this is great. So then I hit up Jonathan. I'm like, yeah, we could do this. But then we started to get everybody there. And then that was sort of like, uh, in, in in that was around when we decided that like uh, our then kind of on again off again other guitar player Mike Lone Star Kerrigan was like not going to play in the band anymore because basically everybody's you know priorities shifted during uh, the pandemic and it just was harder to do things especially like hey let's all fly and play at the Black Cat for free and then film it and then stream it on the internet you know, and then we'll chat like in the middle of a pandemic. Do you know what I'm saying to you? Like <laughs> I, it sounds stupid even saying it to you, but what happened was the other guys in the band and I live in town. Uh John was here because he actually, he was in LA and when everything hit hard, downtown LA in your situation, you know? Mm-hmm. So he made the move that, Hey, I'm going to go somewhere where I can be outside. You know, and and ride this out because I not I can't I can, you know. So we have a a, a band Sprinter that John owns that we use the to tour in sometimes when we do the van and not the bus. He drove it for a while and then he ended up here and we were like, dude, let's let's do this thing. Let's let's film a set we've never done. Let's go down to the black cat. That's our favorite venue. We're supposed to have our 25th anniversary show. It was supposed to be this big event, and it got canceled. So I hit up the black cat. I was like, hey can we just like come play there anyway to no one? And they were like, what? <laughs> they said, Hey, we want to do this thing called a live stream where blah, 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 blah. And they thought we were crazy. And I said, look, uh, we're going to donate everything to you guys because this sucks and we couldn't do the show and we've never done this. Seems weird to take people's money right for a show on the internet. Like what are we doing? So can we come we've got this Patreon money can we come film a live set and we'll donate it to you and they're like well we don't have anything to do and we don't know what what's happening so why not right well we filmed the thing uh we filmed the set we announced it and then all of a sudden like wildfire it caught on and we sold like 5 600 tickets and we started to see like we were going to raise like uh in the end it was over 6 grand for the black cat we donated to them and that's like real power coming from the heavy metal community and uh it totally was completely worthwhile you know and it 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 was a long process is what i'm getting at so when
0: did you start coming up with the set list you mentioned it was one that you never had done before so what were the considerations that went into crafting that particular set
1: well we had to figure out how to make it unique you know because we couldn't all get together necessarily but now it was just going to be the four of us so what was that going to be like and we had had other people fill in you know we had had a fella our good friend from switzerland uh we had had doc who's world famous from god forbid and podcasting and bad wolves he had played on a tour for us so he knew a bunch of darkest hour songs And then, I mean, I'm still buds with, like, a bunch of other dudes who've been in Darkest Hour for a while that everybody loves. They're always like, bring back Chris Norris, bring back Fred Zeomic, you know, like, okay, Mm -hmm. those guys ain't got shit to do. (laughs) Fuck it. So I started hitting guitar player friends up, like, hey, we want to do this live stream. We want to make it special. We want to fly you in satellite and, like, mix you in with the band, you know? And at first it seemed weird, but then as we started putting together, it started to seem really good. And I'm gonna not fucking with you. I encourage everybody to look at the clip that we created of Demons, one song on our YouTube page, uh, you know, or go jam some of the samples you're going to find. Like, this is definitely our best live recording. It is live. You know, the footage is awesome. It's fun to watch. And uh, uh, wow, it came out awesome. So now we have this kind of three-part release that we've created all with the fans' help and all for a great cause. So. It's the darkest hour, greatest hits record, you mm-hmm. know, and the set list was because we had gotten all these guests. And so we kind of cherry picked songs that they loved and knew, you know?
0: Interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask, cause it seems I noticed that there was no material from human romance or the self-titled. And I don't think there was anything from eternal return either. So was that just a matter of like personal preference within the band or were you tailoring to like the skill sets of the guest guitarist? Like what was your, what was your thinking behind that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of hits that could have been stuck in there. I mean, honestly we had just done live at the black cat, like an actual live live record we recorded that was like a little bit scruffy on the edges, but was cool. And it had some of those songs like from those records that you're talking about is like the encore set. Mm -hmm. um so I think we were just sort of trying to do like a mix of what are the songs everybody's gonna want to hear okay you know what those are there's like four of them right but what are the songs we've never done and I don't think it was because I just think there's maybe more of a demand from the internet and from these guitar players to be honest to play the songs that you hear I I mean it's definitely uh, there's great songs on the eternal return and we do play those songs. And, I um, mean, you know, on The Human Romance, the, we're, those songs are almost always in the set. But it just, I don't know, it just didn't kind of happen that way. And we, if we do another live stream, if it if has to happen, well, you know, it's clear what records we have to tap into. You know what I mean? Seriously. I think having Chris, okay, okay, you know what? Can't delete all that. but well, fine, don't, because I said it. But what I'm going to just do is rephrase that entire thing super short and say, first of all, you got Chris Norris and Fred Zeomic back. Okay? Those are two uh, ex-guitar players. So they're going to play shit from their records. So that knocks down a little bit of the set. Then you got Darkest Hour, the band who wants to play something off Godless Prophets. Boom. Okay, so we got that out of the way, right? Then you have everybody on the internet shouting that they want to hear demons a thousand words to stay but one you know so you're like okay we gotta play those sadist nation okay you know mark from suicide silence was all about that so it just sort of like fell into place I, we weren't trying to be that picky but we didn't want to do what we had just done which was like undoing ruin it's in its entirety you know we wanted to do something special and something different and i will say it is really interesting to listen to these songs that were written so far apart from each other under such different situations with such different ki- cast of characters who are recording times of our lives. And when you hear them recorded and played with like the same energy in the same way and the same production, it's so sick how they can all be like together, you know? Yeah. Like that. It feels like a success, if I can am allowed to say that.
0: No, certainly. I mean, I've, I've been a fan of the band for a long time. I mean, I'm like one of those kids that caught on with undoing ruin. So like hearing all of it in context and the fact that there were a fair number of songs pulled from that record certainly made me happy. And you're right. Like listening through that whole collection and that whole body of work, there are like all these interesting changes that have happened, like different lead guitar players that you've had on the other side of the stage with you, different
1: producers, and drummers it's, mm-hmm. bass player you yep. know what i mean i mean the band's been around for 25 years so man the labels fuck the labels are always highly involved with the sound because they were funding the band i don't think people realize how distorted that system was now i do think that that pressure fueled some of our greatest moments but uh, i won't be in that under that gun again mm-hmm. in the same way 2020 whatever
0: I was gonna ask, it it seems like when you're picking the producers for a lot of the records that you've worked on, you tend to be working with producers that are also guitarists. And I've seen in other interviews, you mentioning like picking up bits and pieces of like Devin Townsend's philosophy or Kurt Ballou's philosophy. Were there, Did you do you consciously like seek out producers that you know that you can learn from or that will push you in a specific direction? And specifically when it comes to like playing guitar. Well,
1: this is in no way a slight against any band member's role in the band or in the writing process. But I'm going to explain to you, I kind of think what is the basic foundation here, what leads to what gets us to why all the producers have a heavy understanding of guitar, okay? And it's because like a great Metallica song or a Megadeth song, or a Pantera song, or an Anthrax song, or any big whatever song. Uh, You have the interaction of a guitar and the drums that, you know, you have a riff, okay? Then you have vocals, lyrics, themes, symbolism, imagery, personality. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into that pot, right? But if you want to get down to the original DNA of the way these bands make music, if you want to get to... The, the code that starts it all, you have to be able to understand what's happening on the guitar, translate an idea that's better than possibly some talented people, and then win in an argument against those people who are very passionate about their idea. So uh, success you know breeds authority. So with Devin Townsend, before we even saw him play guitar, we, we respected the fuck out of him. Okay. Cause he's, cause we had known what he'd done and we knew he knew guitar. And so we were going to listen from day one. Even our drummer, even our bass player, even our singer, they don't even play guitar, but we know Devin Townsend knows what the fuck he's talking about with heavy metal. You know what I mean? And then same thing was true with Peter Witcher's. That's why we went to him. We needed another dude who understood that, but, but had more of a classic vision, you know? And then uh, Kurt Ballou, we kind of went back to him because we were like, we felt like we had been missing it because with the other producers uh, we had worked with, which by the way, I, Brian McTernan, he's one of my favorite producers and also in a band with me now currently, Be Well. He is an amazing guitar player, actually, not a shredder, but I love his style and his style is so cool and unique that he understands the way Darkest Hour riffing works. So understand that. He, Brian is a guitar hero on the level that Devin is, but it doesn't make any sense to someone who wants to hear squeakle medus. <laughs> sure. But if this dude wants to get in and change my chords or do whatever, he has good ideas in the same way that Peter, in the same way that Devin did, so uh, and Kurt did. You know what I mean? So it's like, and, and then Taylor, the younger dude who uh, had done self-titled, he had a great sonic vision and he could play guitar really well. You know what I mean? He mm. he he was younger, a lot younger than us at the time. But fuck, he could he had recorded the shit out of himself, man. And he had a cool style. He was good, you know. And he knew how to manipulate pro tools to make himself sound really good. So everybody had their strengths, and I think it's because the beginning DNA of a Darkest Hour song is the guitar. Now, I think excelling as a producer for Darkest Hour fully depends on your ability to connect with John Henry. You know? So it's not just about the guitar. It, once you get the guitar, then it comes to be about, can you make the vocals and the lyrics as good as they need to be? And John is a conduit. He's good. He's got great ideas. He just needs to be shaped sometimes the way all of us do. And when a producer pays attention to him in the right way and doesn't shrug him off because they're only paying attention to the guitar you get something brilliant, you know? And so that's a struggle too. And I think that's why we sort of find ourselves now after nine albums and worked with like so many talented people that it's so hard to name them all that, uh, they would all laugh to hear us say that, uh, I think we're going to be in charge now.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's album 10. I think you've certainly paid your dues to, and like clearly you've probably picked stuff up along the way from these other people that you've worked with. Like, I feel like for me, like once with with the two Devon records, I feel like sort of opened up John's like melodic vocals. That's like the first time that that starts like hint, like becomes a hint and a flavor in your music. And that's something that you've continued to explore and push around in different directions from all of the records since. Um, Just to give an example of like, I feel like there's different things that you've picked up along the way that have just become part of the core Darkest Hour sound. Do you feel like that's fair to say?
1: Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that comment is that I think the reason that the vocals became so much... I don't think they're stronger from Sadist Nation to the to the Twin Records, the Devon Records, but uh, I think they're obviously clearer. You know, John's intent is, is more precise and you can see him growing to where he is now. Uh, I think that the main difference was that we started focusing on the drums being to a click.
0: Uh, Ah, okay.
1: And I know that sounds weird, but man, it's hard to sing this shit when it's like some punk rock tempo. And I do not fault Ryan for that. Trust me. This is not a slight, like I love his style. I love how that shit sounded, but, uh, you know, the way people were hearing music was shifting and in, you know, it wasn't, you know, Ryan's intent was to play to a click too and he did and he did well and that's why those albums have a little life but they're to the click. But once we did that and committed to that, then that really changed the vocals. And to be honest with you, when we recorded with Frederick Nordstrom in Sweden, like, we, we thought he was a badass producer but he couldn't really play guitar and he didn't really seem to give a shit really as much as the other producers and people we'd worked with. So, like, he didn't win our respect in the same way that... um the other people did you know and I think that Devin won our respect and that's what got us playing to the click right away Mm -hmm.
0: yeah going back to the this is maybe a bit of a broad question but I'm I'm just curious about like the history of how these this style has sort of evolved because I think of you guys as very much like a musically metal band but like culturally are very hardcore punk and you come from that like interesting point in time where it seems like a lot of that like swedish influenced like the swedish metal sound sort of just like took over american metal core for a while and i was curious about like your perspective on why that stuff became such a huge influence not just on you but on the scene as a whole around that time
1: hmm. i mean it's just the new wave of swedish heavy metal dude i mean god damn just one record after another that was life-changing i mean for me, I guess if I step back, I'm a kid, I love guitar. Why do I love guitar? Well, motherfucking Angus Young, Eddie van Annie Helen, and then motherfucking one day, Dimebag Daryl. Holy shit, Pantera. I'm in. But um checking out Pantera, and nah, I don't really relate that well to like a Pantera show. I go to a Pantera show. I love Pantera, love Pantera fans. I'm a Pantera fan. Don't get me wrong. But as a kid in the 90s, I would go to a Pantera show and I felt like I didn't fit in. You know, everybody was like pretty tough. They were pretty macho and shit. You know, heavy metal is that way. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I love aggressive music. I love aggressive people. I am. I'm just saying I didn't fit in and I was looking for something. And then all of a sudden I found the American metal hardcore movement of vegan straight edge of the 90s which sounds weird as shit to say out loud, but there was a movement in the American hardcore scene that was shifting from your more straight punk beats building off minor threat and shifting into a kind of more metal sound. You know, emo had been created and Darkest Hour was sort of on the cusp of these bands where we would play... Uh, shows that were in the hardcore scene, but we were playing heavy metal and that sort of became our identity. And so right away, anything we were doing was like musically sort of ahead of a lot of these bands. You know, even if if we just, we have double bass and it had a lot of raw energy in in everything. So it caught a a lot of attention. But after a while, some of that musicality got lost in all that energy. And I think it's just taken some time for it to all sort of coalesce in the correct way. But when I found... Like that metal hardcore world that 's when I sort of found my friends. you know I found my my core friend group that i like I still text to this day that doesn 't really have anything to do with the band, but they still like heavy metal, and none of us are uh, straight edge some of us are still vegan, but none of us are straight edge, and we all text we love the straight edge, we love veganism, we love the nineties we love earth crisis, snap case. Bloodlet, even though they weren't straight edge, but I'm just naming off refused. I don't know if they were totally straight edge, but it was all in the same scene, you know, and uh that's where we connected. We grew out of, but then we got we got out of that scene, that safe space where you're playing halls and your to your subculture where it's really people are just excited you're there and they want to connect with some people out of town and you become friends with people at the show but we sort of transitioned to like playing with destruction you know mm-hmm. and then it was like a bunch of dudes standing around going like yo you guys suck <laughs> you can't tell what the fuck you guys are playing <laughs> and then we sort of had to evolve again you know but we couldn't have stayed in the vfw although we aren't afraid to play a vfw we couldn't have stayed there or we would have, you know, never have never been able to continue to exist.
0: And so when did like the, the Swedish style stuff start becoming like part of your sound? Because I, I think of that as like a pretty core building block along yeah, I way I mean, becoming darkest hour. So
1: that's kind of where I was getting at. We're sitting in this like a punk VFW Hollish DIY show thing, but we're playing heavy metal, you know? But the heavy metal is based on like these metal core bands you know our earliest influences before the swedish bands were damnation ad bloodlet uh battery sheer terror <laughs> i mean i'm just like throwing out random negative mm-hmm. approach uh like john liked a lot of different uh torn apart we liked this hardcore band i mean we liked all sorts of weird stuff whatever we get 7 inches of it's sort of how me and john became friends right, right. and so we're in this world of like okay, we we love the scene and we start touring. I mean, we start touring in this scene and we start going around. And as we start going around, you know, the thing to do on tour was to go to record stores. And so I actually was on tour with another band. We started going to go into record stores and I and now, you know, I was like, I love heavy metal. And then all of a sudden people were like, Well, you should go to the black metal section. I'm like, what's black metal? I mean, there was no internet or whatever. So we were on tour and we were we were traveling around. We were going to Record stores, and we were talking to people, and people started telling us about black metal, thrash metal. You know, Tower Records had this weird area on the back where they stuck all the imports, and you could order stuff. So we started ordering stuff, you know, and we started discovering these bands, and we liked In Flames, we liked Dismember, we liked Entombed. You know, these bands existed, right? We really liked. Uh, I think it was it was Horacle. Okay. Oh yeah. But then, motherfucking wait. Hold on I gotta get my time right. Okay, uh, Colony claimant Okay, as yeah, to Horacle was the one that we really liked. That was like ninety seven. Was that ninety seven? Shit. So Slaughter of the Soul would have been first. Basically, oh, it was the Jester Race. That yeah. was the In Flames record with the face on it, dude. That I had that before I knew about At the Gates. Okay, so I liked In Flames. John was on the fence because he hated nudely fucking medieval shit. But I was like, man, this is sick, dude. This is cool. And then what was missing was Slaughter of the Soul. And I'm telling I know that Terminal Spirit Disease existed. I know all those fucking other albums existed Red in the Sky. All that shit's awesome. Yeah, we missed it. Sorry. But we did hear Slaughter of the Soul when it came out, and it was like, whoa. All of a sudden, whoa. You know, Earth Crisis had put out Destroy the Machines, which is a, one of my favorite, one of their records. And that's probably their fullest realized metalcore kind of driving in my, you know, I mean, more Season's End is good too, but they had put that out and I swear to God, then it was like shocked the system. But we didn't connect. Can I tell you, At The Gates played with Napalm Death down the street, uh, like... I'm not down the street, maybe like 40 minutes away and darkest hour played with one Oh eight ensign. I don't know. Some other bands at some like weird warehouse squat thing and at the gates played. We didn't care enough to go because I don't think we fully knew how much we loved it because we were so entrenched in our little culture, you know? And I think at the gates was the first band that really, we all uniquely together liked you know Mm -hmm. because and then we were kind of posers though until ryan you know who was in the band for a really long time on a bunch of the records came in and he was like oh you guys like at the gates well what about all these motherfucking bands and i was like god damn he was like my heavy metal older brother you know ryan just had it all and then uh then it just developed from there, you know? So then our musical vocabulary of the Swedish and shit was unlimited. Cause Ryan knew a bunch of shit. And then that wrote me and John and we started getting fall in love with those albums and finding the ones that we were connected with and getting influenced by. And then we parted ways with our then second guitarist, Fred Yomick and got Chris in the band and Chris and Ryan were boys and Chris knew a bunch of the other shit that Ryan didn't know. So then I was like, uh, had been around a bunch of music geeks and dudes like that. I'm explaining that loved Swedish metal, and we were all making music. So that that's when you get to where does darkest hour take that turn? Straight from metal hardcore to Swedish influenced, and it's right around when John Henry and Mike Schleibom and Chris Norris and Ryan Parrish start connecting and learning to you know about those bands, and then those albums come out. Because then the other thing that came out is. Clayman came out right around when Mark of the Judas was supposed to come out, like a month, maybe even a week or two, okay? But Mark of the Judas never came out because the record label folded. Right. So, Clayman came out and changed the goddamn world. And then Mark of the Judas came out and we were like, shit. We were always kind of, and then what happened is, uh, we were trying to figure out where to go from Mark of the Judas because it kind of had never caught on and we were working and we were trying to work fast. But it's strange to think that then they turned around and flames turned around and put out Colony, which just is fucking amazing. And then we put out So City and So Secure, which I'm not saying isn't amazing, but is not our most championed album. So uh, we were on that timeline. We played the Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee Metal Fest as these bands, you know, came over to America for the first time. The first time Children of Bodom ever played in Montreal. Darkest Hour played with Destruction and Cataclysm on that show. We had never heard of Children of Bodom, mm. anything. Wow. You know what I mean? And then we were rightly served with fucking. I remember Amon Amarth. People always said we sounded like Amon Amarth. we were like, well, I mean, I guess. We did a tour with the Monomarth. We're like, hey, well, we should headline. I mean, they never tour America. We mm-hmm. fucking tour all the time, man. We draw like a couple, couple hundred, you know, five, 600 people here, there, man, we should headline. So what happens on uh, Monomarth comes over, share a bus. All of a sudden, after three shows of them fucking destroying us, oh, we flipping. And then <laughs> they play last. Then we play last. I mean, cause they drew everyone, man. And then, you know, you just learn from that. You learn about these bands, enslaved Mm-hmm. Never really knew about them. Then they did the tour of destruction. So uh that's 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 I mean, man, it's that 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 story in itself is a fucking podcast.
0: Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm starting to wish I had started there instead. Um, but moving forward into the more current the last decade, really, I've noticed that the the last three records have had longer pauses in between them. So it's been sort of a slower decade on at least the recorded end for darkest hour. I'm assuming that's probably because you've got, you know, as you mentioned, you've got the TV gigs and family life and whatnot to take care of, but I'm curious about like what your reflections on the more recent records in particular, the self-titled record. Cause I think that one was kind of divisive for a, a number of darkest hour fans. So I'm curious about like what you think of that particular album and human romance and Godless prophets, like, how do you feel about the more recent stuff that you've done now that you've had some time to reflect upon it?
1: Oh Well, well first, let me say for a record, I'm 100% proud and stand behind every album we made, even the ones that have serious, glaring mistakes. I mean, you know, some of that shit has charm and some of it's like, fuck, why would we do that? But, you know, at least it's like got personality because it's mm-hmm. people taking risks, you know? Right. Um, But, and I also don't see them as... I, I do see how the, the timeline feels like the albums are farther apart. But from where I'm at, it's like what happens is the band gets bigger, we get more attention, we get more to lose, we have to make sure everything's better. It gets harder when things get good to make them better. And then you get to a place where you're like, does the world need another record unless it's better than the one they already love and or you're Bob Dylan and you just fucking write songs all day but we sort of got to this point where everything became a little bit more precious so it became harder and we had to work harder and then we also have constantly been evolving our sound so that takes time to get used to and to work on and at the same time as the albums get later in our career, we get paid more to create them, which means we get expected more to tour on them, which means the creation of the albums gets harder to do, you know, mm-hmm. because when we made Mark of the Judas going into Associated Aid and Sousa Cure, I was in college, but we didn't tour. We just practiced every weekend. And that was it. When we made uh, Godless Prophets after self-titled, I mean, we fucking toured the entire time and crowdfunded the entire album and writ- wrote it and then went to Salem and lived there for six weeks. I mean, like, it felt like my life flew by. It, it, it We worked the whole time, you know right. what I mean? But, like, uh, it got harder. And then when we signed the deal with Sumerian, uh, the owner of the label, who we are friends with, and we did, you know, have a great relationship with, even though we wanted, probably threw chairs at each other and shit and yelled at each other. Like... They were involved. We wanted them involved. That was like our seventh album. Like we wanted, you know, or eighth. I can't remember, but we wanted to be pushed, you know? And uh, so you get talented people. I mean, he's a he's a villain, but Tony Victory, uh, Ash Avelson, who isn't a villain, uh, who's actually the opposite of Tony in my opinion, but you have those characters. Then you have E1 Records, Century Media Records, the crowdfunding thing. You know, these are these are actors. These are forces that, color the music you know Mm -hmm. so i i don't know i mean i just think those are all the reasons why uh it it takes longer and i think where we're at now is someplace that's different which is that i think it's become like it it used to be i was creating music every day and i was posting a snippet on the internet because why not dude i want you to hear i'm working on new shit but now i'm just like fuck that I got so much shit. If you want to hear like what we're doing that's behind the scenes, we'll we'll give you a cool sounding demo here on Patreon. But instead, we're over here and we're making music, we're making records and we're trying to like, you know, at the same time exist as a business and a band so it gets harder to do them. So my reflections are, I love the Eternal Return but I wish we had just, I wish we hadn't gone for the polarizing guitar sound that we went with. And there's a few other things on the production end I wish we knew but whatever Uh, I do think it wasn't, you know, I think Brian, the producer gave it his all. I think the band was in a hard place having just replaced Chris and being on the last album with Tony, but that put us in a cool spot because you get some, some really cool solos that were pushed. There's some cool solos on that record and some awesome sounds and stuff that we were just really geeking out on, you know, that you hear. So I, I really like like the eternal return, it's got some weird hits like Bitter is our shortest, darkest hour song ever. Mm-hmm. Death Worship is like a total hit nobody ever talks about. Into the Gray, the last song, is one of my favorite darkest hour songs ever. We just don't really ever play it. You know what I mean? Right. And then self-titled. Okay, what's the deal with self-titled? Well, I I don't... I think what happened was the ultimate explosion of potential possible like possibilities, okay? Because what you had was seismic shift in the band because the entire rhythm section changed okay that's what the difference between self-titled and eternal return is on the on the surface you know like travis coming in and deal coming in changed the idea of like what is a darkest hour song let's try anything like we've already done a bunch of this same shit. Like, let's go crazy. And Sumerian was like, fuck yeah. We love you. We love Mark of the Judas. We love Undoing Ruin. I mean, those are Ashes, some of his personal favorite records, but we want you to do you now. So, do you do something crazy? But you know what? Now we have the people that can do crazy shit. Like, Travis can do crazy shit on the drums and he understands music in a different way. And so does Aaron. And so that seismic shift starts to happen. Then we say, oh, we want to add in this producer. Um, We want to add in someone young, not like one of these old guitar hero guys, like you've been saying. So we add Taylor, and Taylor got a totally different perspective. And, you know, we tortured him. I feel bad for him because we were in a tough place, and he did his best, and Sumerian tried. And in the end, you kind of have the convergence of a lot of people trying really hard. And maybe, in my opinion, in retrospect, the band could have had a little more room to breathe. But what you got was a lot of material mm-hmm. you have basically darkest hours use your illusion one and two if you take use your illusion one and two by guns and roses and you just make a playlist of the good songs and you take like november rain off and shit you have a good guns and roses record so that's what you have a darkest hour you have a 14 song record that does whatever it wants uh i mean maybe the full record isn't 14 but there's 14 with the b-sides and the you know the extended yeah yeah Then, uh, I mean, I sort of skipped over the human romance was kind of the bridge between uh, the eternal return and self-titled because uh, the human romance was sort of a more produced, you know, melodic kind of rock. Almost it was there, but wasn't you know yeah, what it, I mean? it sounds like mm-hmm. you
0: were kind of like bridging that gap yeah like yeah the thrashier stuff and the and more the, like radio metal stuff on this well the,
1: yeah and that was e1 wanting radio something accessible i think savor the kill was a good uh niche at that i think love is a weapon was a good niche at that mm-hmm. you know what i mean but you know you know I'm not, whatever i think there's some the uh the last song on the album uh i can't remember the name of it right now the,
0: the instrumental or the one
1: no the last song in the album is
0: uh beyond the life you, life know. you know that's
1: a great song yeah man. you know and then um you know there's some cool songs on there that sort of just
0: i think that record's really underrated personally
1: <laughs> i really like the uh, human romance so and then and then you know the the the, the self-title was sort of a reaction uh, they're always a reaction to the last record but a reaction from the environment as well and then what you hear when you get to the godless prophets record which i love too is sort of a combination of, it has some of the most insane guitar shit we've ever done. I mean, it has shit on there. The solo for Timeless Numbers is, um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to play it personally. (laughs) I I play rhythm. I play the rhythm sides. I got to play that part. I'm like maybe the one person in the world who gets the get out of free card. Because like if you're jamming with Schleibom, you want Schleibom to play his part. Well, my part's the rhythm. But that part's hard. But I love what Kurt did with the attitude of that record the sound i think it was the perfect snap back from where we were at in a sense to let people know as a listener like we're gonna do whatever we want Mm -hmm. a darkest hour song song can be whatever we want the message and the purpose of the band is the same but you know the vehicle can change if we want to color outside the lines but i think where we're at now if i can talk on the new record that nobody you've just
0: predicted my next question so i don't
1: want to do that i'm i talk too much so you ask the question then i'll answer
0: the the thing that i'm curious about is like what are you reacting to now that like from the last record like what do you want to get better at how do you want to improve and how is how are you how do you want to build on godless prophets for album number 10
1: well i'm gonna preface this with like we're in the middle of making it. So you're just getting a snapshot of Mike Schleibom's mind, wherever it's at right now. So who knows if what I'm saying is true at all, but this is where I'm at currently, which is that I think having broken the mold of like, what is a darkest hour song? And then gone back and made live at lockdown made undoing ruin, but you know, champion some of the older material, weird stuff on the Patreon. And you know, people asking like, how do you play an ethereal drain? in some of these songs where I'm like, What we have a fucking song called that? (laughs) Um, It's really made me have a new perspective of what what does the band sound like overall together, you know. And when you when you when you smash down like time, the way that someone who experiences Pantera does now, where every album, if you if you find Pantera on Spotify or Slayer, you just find Hell Awaits at the same time. You get Seasons of the Abyss. You don't gotta wait, you know. So you you, you just, they're all stacked up against each other, all compressed, that's it, together, you know? And so I think I personally have a strong sense of, you know, what I think the band should sound like. But I think where we're at now is sort of like, there's an element of all of the albums sort of combined to a sense of like, yeah, that's Darkest Hour, but an over-heightened awareness of, the purpose of the lyrics and the message of the album in a way to maybe make it more direct, you know, less coded in some ways that we have, less storytelling, you know. Um, so we're experimenting a lot with like, what do we have to say lyrically, emotionally, thematically in this important time or in general, you know? And I think that's something that's overlooked. It's an art, you know, we, we have to make you feel something with the lyrics and the message. So that's part of it. And I also think... I want there to be an element of like not a futuristic vibe on the guitar, but I mean, imagine, you know, you, the listener are playing in a band. You've been in the same band for 25 years. And when you started the band, everyone told you you're always going to fail because what the fuck is going on with the vocals? What the fuck is going on with double bass? You guys don't have any guitar solos and you have these like breakdowns like what is this, right? Mm-hmm. Two, that's the type of music you're going to fucking see on TV behind car commercials, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, I, mean, totally. I mean, my mom, Uh, she told me my entire life this band would fail because the, the music was good, but the vocals sucked, you know? Mm-hmm. And now, Uh, tech, the world's come to us. Like, we didn't change that much over 25 years, but everybody's evolved to where we're at. You know, and sometimes when we try to play the guitar Olympics, it's sort of hard to champion that because there is a lot of forward thinking people out there who are ahead of us in that department. But I think if we can like combine the fact that we love heavy metal guitar and we love uh, what people love about a heavy metal guitar record, but at the same time, we want you to feel a purpose of that music. And we don't want any of that to get lost in the basic idea that like guitar and drums make riff, make song, make that important then I think we'll have a great record you know and uh man we've got like five I think right now that are so goddamn good I don't think that something's gonna beat them out but I do think we're sort of in the phase where we're writing to beat what's good and I like that part of the phase because you either get your first really really good song and you go back to the beat and you go okay hold up that shit's better than everything wow or you just write a couple more and they fit together and then you start drafting you're working on that draft and all of a sudden you're like wow we're almost there and it like surprises you like out of the fog it appears you know Mm -hmm. so i just think um yeah covid set humanity back and we're very lucky to be able to talk over the internet and about my, our stupid little heavy metal band. But we're out here, we're making music, we're making art, we're making these songs and it's coming together regardless of the fact that we've had to work around this shit. And that's where we're at. Do you mind if I ask you one final question? Of course, what do you mean? Um, just,
0: I want, you know, you're a busy guy. I don't want to take away your time. And I like that, put that on the podcast, I'm
1: busy. No, <laughs>
0: yes, of course. So, you know, you mentioned that you did the Undoing Ruin anniversary concerts and it's clear that that record has lived on for a lot of your fans and for me included i want to be like up front like that's like one of my favorite metal records ever and it might be a sentimental But the anniversary of the live lockdown no 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 no, no. the undoing ruin the, the original oh, oh, oh the ruin. live of the black cat yeah well i I'm oh, saying, oh, oh the original Undo- yeah. yeah okay
1: and so like yeah that's a sick record
0: yeah <laughs> I and mean, I'm just curious about like why do you think that record has endured for so long? Like why do you think that album has such a special place in so many Darkest Hour fans' hearts? Like what about that record in particular?
1: Timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you want to get into the dirty side, you know, um, I think it had to do with the fact that Victory had five records with Darkest Hour. They put a ton of money into the first one, so Sedated, that was shot. Then they put a ton of money into uh, Sadist Nation, flew us to Sweden, and marketed that whole thing. Eh, did a little better, but eh. Oh, oh, whoops, got them on Ozfest. Okay, now what? Okay, they're playing in front of people. All right, let's produce these guys up. This is our third record. we got two more after this. So we this is their last one. we got to invest hard. So they go, they get Devin Townsend. We have the seismic shift we need. They promote the hell out of it. Victory does. Boom. Earthquake. Well, then Deliver Us comes out. Well, that was amazing. Let's do it again. Let's hire Devin. No problem. Throw money at him. No problem. Write a bunch of equally badass songs. No problem. Mix them. No problem. But, timing's different. Mm -hmm. Let's not promote it the same because hey, Mm, we already spent all that money and we're running out of records and man this band they've been on this label for a while they're gonna want to do something else so this is probably our last chance to milk it in right so then that album they promote it to a point where whatever they're gonna get paid back that's good business that's how they see it because what comes after that the eternal return the last record why push that right yeah bands out the door as soon as that album's turned in so i think that the timing of when the the albums were promoted but i also don't think you can deny the hard work and chemistry of the dudes that were in the band at the time you know myself john included but ryan paul uh and chris and then also devin okay because let me tell you something about devin he's nuclear when you're around him he's like the sun if you can get near his orbit fly there okay so Devin he wanted to be a producer you know he was tired of arguing with bands I think so at some point I think he he put a lot of himself in that album on doing ruin too I mean that's why that's good too and then what happened is Devin put even more of himself in deliver us because he felt the guilt and the weight for the band to try to make it better and he really did I mean he really did make that as good as it needed to be you know and uh, then I think we exhausted him and I think at that moment he realized he was so good at recording why not just record what he does and I'm not going to speak for him I'm not speaking for him Uh, but I am saying we exhausted him I'm thankful for his hard work and that I'm sure he would maybe put some shine on that but we're a hard band to be around with. And that was a tough time. And he, and he put in a lot of hard work. It was a tough time for him as a person too, with having a kid and life and adjusting from touring to producing, and whatever he was doing. So um it was around when he made the Ziltoid record, I believe. So uh, like I said, those are the, those are the components done doing ruin. If you want to know why you think that's the, the album. But I think when you're the artist, you know, they all mean something to you, so it's like, if that's the time. Oh, you know what it what it is is that, even though undoing room was like that time, maybe that timing when it all slammed. There's still people all the time that are connecting with like all the different songs and all the different shit, and even that record, and then the other ones. And when that happens, it's kind of magical too. You know, you're like, ah, eh, it doesn't have to be those special babies are the only songs that matter. But I do agree, you know. I'm proud and happy to have at least got that close to the sun with that album. If that's mm-hmm. the one that people are going to champion, I'm okay with that, you know, but I also think the catalog fits really well together. And I think live and lockdown is a really good example of that.
0: A hundred percent. I agree. Totally. I just personally, I'd like to say that like part of the reason that that album has that undoing ruin has stuck with me for so long is that it's one of the few metal records that like sounds that way that also has lyrics that are actually like, positive and like make me feel like better about myself instead of like just like wallowing in darkness and like the wallowing and darkness stuff is sick i love brutal death metal and all of that but putting on undoing ruin is like it has that like hardcore motivation power to it and has that like i don't know more human touch to it that i think that a lot of metal records lack so i just want to say like thank you for making a record like that and it's just great to have that in my life, you know.
1: Well, I appreciate that. That's like one of the main driving forces of why this was still what I do with my life in the middle of a pandemic. Like, mm-hmm. it's weird. If you had asked me uh, a long time ago if I would ever do a band if touring ceased, live playing ceased, I would say, fuck no, I'm out. I'll cash out. You won't even hear me. I don't need to post one more thing. I hate the internet. I hate this shit. I'm over it. But as I've learned, I've always valued the connection to people. And now that I don't have the ability to like play shows in the way that we used to, and there is a way to still connect digitally in some form. Like it still seems healthy. And if you can create a record that gets people through their day and connects with them the same way that maybe undoing Ruin did with you. And, 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 you know, every record doesn't have to connect on that heavy of a level, even if it's just what you go jogging to for a month. Sure. Like yeah. that is, what an artist can do in a time of, you know, never-ending, you know, terror from all media ends, you know, here's just some art. Let I me mean, you just turn it off, and uh, go on a journey with us for a minute, and we might even talk about some heavy subjects. Might even talk about some shit you're already thinking about, but that's okay, because good heavy metal makes you think. And I think that's what I touched on about the new album, and that's what we've learned about the albums in the past, and that's what you echoed, which is that when the album has a really clear purpose and the music is there and it connects, you really have that thing that makes kind of darkest hour special, you know, in a way that people remember it forever.
0: Well, I couldn't think of a better way to close this off. So Mike, thank you so much for spending the time tonight. No problem. I never shut up.
1: Sorry about it, but it's your (laughs) fault. You guys got me on here. You got to try to get one of the guys that don't talk. The interview goes like this. Yeah. We made that record was sick.
0: (laughs) Happy to have you talk my ear off anytime, man. This was a delight.
1: All right. Well, thank you for allowing me to punish you with stories of yesteryear. Everybody, go sign up to our Patreon and fucking party with us. We're going to be putting out music and art and stuff through that. And then we're going to go be on stages. We're not fucking scared of you people. So whenever it's, you know, decent enough to go out there and get a whole bunch of shit shot up in our arms to go get wherever we need to be, we don't give a fuck. We are coming. So, yeah. We're going to, you know, respect that people, uh, you know, we have to respect the rules the way things are occasionally because we don't want to do the wrong thing and get anyone hurt. But we love music, so that's where we're at. You know what I mean?
0: Fuck yeah. Can't wait to see you on a stage sometime in the future. Cheers, man. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Mike, for joining me. Also, thank you Stephanie Marlowe for helping set up this interview. You can find Darkest Hour's latest work on their Patreon at patreon.com slash DarkestHour Official. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about it or leave a good rating and review. If you'd like to give me some feedback, feel free to email me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. Finally, as I've hinted at in a few of my previous episodes, I have a new Lamna album available for pre-order on my Camp page. I'll have more to say about that soon. Until next time.